Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so, uh... Right. My reading was loud. I was going to Google community group, the Google Plus group, psychology. Nice. Yeah, and 33,000 people in that group. So it might be a lot of people hearing you guys laugh. <laughs> so uh, just letting you know. Uh, and I'll let you know if that happens. Moderator of that group. Mostly what I do is I go through and click things when you move, post, move, post, post. <laughs> post. <laughs> um, I just let you know. If that does happen, I'll keep you apprised. Um, today we'll talk about something, in psychology we meet, most of the work on animals, besides like neuroscience and that, most of the work on animals has been done looking at learning. Um, most psychologists who study animals and, and their behavior are studying learning behavior. The other stuff we'll talk about in this class tends to be attacked a little bit differently and a lot more by biologists. Um, so when we talk about learning, we talk about animal work in psychology, it tends to just be about learning, just the way it is. Make sure this is recording at the feeling. Oh, yeah, push the button. Okay. So, what's learning? Um, this is one of those things where it's a hard, we all know what it is, but it's a hard thing to define. Uh, the definition I like see, if this is that learning class that I teach, which is what, 3306, I think we, will, we would spend 20 minutes trying to define learning. I'm just going to tell you what I think it is, and that's a crazy thing. Uh, and that's some event at time one affects behavior or influences behavior at time two. Okay? That's Bob Rescorla's definition, and Rescorla knows more about stuff like that than I do, and I think it's a perfectly good definition. Uh, I've heard other ones, but I, I like this one because it's very general. Yeah, there's obviously cases here where some event time one affects behavior at time two. If I, if I remove you can't walk anymore, that's not really learning except learning that I'm apparently a fan of the Saw series or something. But, 
that's a ridiculous example. Typically, we're talking about some stimulus and some response. That's a good definition. I like it. So this then can help us with classical conditioning. And for those of you that haven't done this stuff since intro psych, I will very briefly go over this. If I shock or something. Um, classical conditioning is the conditioned stimulus and the unconditioned stimulus. So the conditioned stimulus happens, and then the unconditioned stimulus. So there's your buzzer, there's your meat powder, and Pavlov's dog's mouth. Eventually, when you play the CS alone, so the buzzer by itself, it elicits a response. Typically, a US, well, always, a US elicits an unconditioned response. So if I put meat powder in a dog's mouth, that sound bites, right? Um, that happens with you too. If I put food in your mouth, you're going to salivate. No. Now, the condition stimulus, after multiple pairings, typically, multiple pairings of the CS and the US, the condition stimulus on its own will elicit the condition response. Okay? And Pavlov found this because he was studying digestion in dogs. The buzzer goes off, and it was basically an automated feeding machine. He was collecting sal saliva with tubes that were right in the dog's bottom of the dog's And the thing, the story goes, that he ran out of uh, food, but it kept operating. And he noticed that the salivation would happen whenever the feeder operated, even though there was no food being put in the dog's mouth. So it was just the sound of the buzz. There was no bells, not a bell. Pavlov never rang a bell. People will tell you he did, but those people are wrong. Gotta go read Pavlov. So that's one kind of learning. Okay? There's the event in time one. And then time two is the CS by itself. What? Remember that, right? Intro psych, some of you end up to learning with me, but a lot of you probably haven't learned this since intro. Operant conditioning or instrumental conditioning is when a behavior becomes more likely because of a reinforcement. Okay. This is scary. So usually in this case you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have what's called a discriminative stimulus, which for some reason is an SD, not a DS. So that might be a, a, a key light lighting up that pigeon's operable box. And when that lights up, that means the response can happen. What the DSD means is that the, the contingencies are active. So now you get a response. The pigeon pecks at the little key light, which is about the size of a looming. It's a lit up thing. And pigeon experiments are done in the dark, except for the light shining. The pigeon notices the light very easily. They start pecking at it. And after so many packs, they can reinforce it. Eventually, because you just exit the light, even if you don't get reinforcement. Okay. This is how you typically train your dog. Right? You give it a cookie after it comes in for pooping outside. You 
rub it behind its ears when it does some trick properly, when it doesn't shake the paw. Right? It's easy enough. So we've all done that implicitly. This kind of stuff happens to us all the time. Uh, I can, can demonstrate right now. Think of food you like. Notice how you started to salivate. It just happens. You're built that way. It's a good thing. A lot of animal behavior in general is learned. Right? A lot of animal behavior is learned. There is an issue with uh, this kind of learning. This one's okay. I, I, I like this. This kind here, what is a reinforcer? Skinner defined a reinforcer as any event that made responding more likely. Yeah, that sounds good. So what makes responding more likely? Any event that makes responding more likely. <laughs> it's got a bit of a problem. It's got a bit of a problem. And nowadays, by the way, we do know that what reward is. We, in the nucleus accumbens in the ventral tegmental area, and the pineal forebrain bundle, so we know that. But the weird thing is, I can talk about learning, I can, I can, I can predict your studying behavior. Because it's going to go up just before a test, and in that case, then the test is actually a reinforcer for studying behavior. So reinforcers always don't feel good. So if you want to know more about that stuff, take 3306 next year. It's, uh, it's not the easiest class in the world. Or the most exciting. I'm really selling it here. Um, I actually quite like it, but I'm, I'm, when it gets this stuff I like, when it gets to opera conditioning, I feel like I'm going to fall asleep while lecturing. That's how boring it is. Like I get the head nods while talking. Okay, one of the key things for the longest time, Skinner talked about was what was called equal potentiality. The notion that any behavior, any behavior can be learned. So the pigeon pecks at the key light to get the food, but what if we, instead of reinforcing pecking, what if we reinforce the pigeon twirling around like this? Well, we could. If you're good enough at shaping, you actually could do that. So typically, you go to design an experiment so that the only thing the thing's going to do is peck. So that's why it's not in the dark, things like that. But you do end up with cases where animals do things that aren't the same as what you expect. I had an experiment, uh, I guess that would be experiment six for my PhD thesis, and I had this um, box cage about that big, about that, by that, by that. And then at the front there was a computer monitor and it was a touch screen and the pigeon pecked at it. Pigeons, right, the chickadees and the juncos. Pecked at it. Long story, what ended up having to happen was the, the, the bird would peck and then you want it to go away from the screen because if it just stands right by the screen where the stimulus flies, it's not showing learning, it's showing that learning that if I just stand here and peck and get it. So we had a perch at the back of the cage and a little photo beam. Okay, so the bird, bird's task as a pet is to go back and stand on the photo beam and break the photo beam for five seconds for the retention of the hope that it flies back. Most of the 
birds just learn this. I mean, they, they fly around. So chickadees this big, cages this big. They fly around a lot. Eventually, they learn. I've got to go sit back there. There's one of the few perches in the cage. And the junk goes learn it too, except for one that learned that the way to get the stimulus to come back, he went to the back, and he's looking around because he's a bird. <laughs> and then he, instead of going and perching, he just sort of jumped through it. <laughs> And stimulus comes back, he's like, okay, great. So this went the rest of his life <laughs> in our lab. Would jump through this photo, <laughs> which was hilarious, right? And I remember watching it thinking, well, it works. He actually waits at least five seconds. Okay. What was his name? He named one nine. I think it was Nora. I named all the Junkos after characters on Cheers. <laughs> Norm and Sam and Diane and Frazier and those guys. All my, all my uh, chickadees were named after Montreal Canadiens players. So I'm like, uh, Maurice, he, like classic players. Patrick. So there's something to be said for this. The, the, the problem is that eventually an animal won't do what you want if it really goes against what the, animal, the animal's biology system is. So if you take pigs, and you get pigs to hide coins in piggy banks, and somebody did this because of Breland and Breland did this, 1961. Why? Well, actually, they were making a storefront display for a bank, advertising. They were like, it was like Mad Men with pigs. So I'm just thinking sort of the whole Don Draper thing with one of these big studies. I have no dignity. Um, well, he's holding a drink, having sex with a woman who wasn't his wife and smoking a cigarette. So, not a lot of Mad Men fans in here. Anyway, so, they train the pigs in the storefront of a bank. This is where your, this is your service charges at work here from the bank. To put money in a piggy bank, isn't that cute? So the pig learns to do that. They have these little books that have to be hard, but they have no. coins. And then after, and they learned it very quickly, really, really very good at training, uh, at uh, shaping. But then after a while, they, they didn't do it. Instead, they just took the coins and they wooded around with them with their noses on the, on the ground. So that didn't work. So they thought, well, what we'll do is we'll train raccoons to do this. No, because raccoons, it looks like they got little masks. It's like they're robbing banks. It's cute as hell. That's cuter than the pigs, but not as delicious. So they get the raccoons to do this, and they go to put their coins in that little hand. And at first they would do it, and then they wouldn't do it. All they do is put the coin like this and take it out, put it, take it out, and then they, then they wash it, like raccoons do with food. You can't get any, any behavior cannot be hooked up to any reinforcer. You can't get uh, a hamster to, I'm going to get this properly, I'm going to get this right, this is my supervisor's research, so. You can't get, you can't shock away certain things, like you can't punish grooming behavior. Doesn't work. In a hamster. You know, hamsters groom, you ever want a hamster, rats, and they get they clean themselves off, they lick themselves, that kind of thing. You can't get 
that removed through punishment. You can't just shock them every time they do it. You can, they don't stop grooming. Think about it, grooming actually probably feels good to the hamster. And it probably removes parasites and all kinds of stuff. So, actually, so the animal is hooked up, so that feels good already. So zapping it with electricity, and again, don't be too concerned. It's not enough that it hurts a lot. It's a little bit uncomfortable. When you hook up these shock generators, usually you put your hand on the, the prod, and it's enough that it, it just goes zzz, like it's, it's not as bad as getting a static electricity shock from a, a door or something. Not even close to that. It just feels weird and uncomfortable. But it's enough that it's like, animals won't do it. You can't shock that away. So everything isn't equal. This shouldn't surprise us. We talked about gene-environment interaction. Um, Skinner was way on that crazy side of everything's the environment. Right? Okay. So this shouldn't surprise you. Questions about that? I can't train a dog to speak no matter how hard I try. Well, haven't you seen that YouTube video? Stop it. <laughs> I still get, I get emails from people once every six months. Dear Dr. Bradbeck, I see that you study animal cognition. My dog. It's like, oh no. <laughs> I see this YouTube video where my dog counts. I usually reply with, read this Wikipedia article about clever punts. Um, yeah, I'm on this list of scientists who study animal cognition. So, and my name starts with a B, my university starts with an A, so I'm usually one of the first people I go to. There's nothing nice ones too, kids in grade seven. Hello, I'm doing a project on lions. Do you know anything about lions? <laughs> no, but that's awesome. <laughs> Let me do a quick Google Scholar search for you. you know, those guys are like. <laughs> one, one kid asked, how would I prove my dog had memory? Which was just so neat, kids doing a science project. I, I didn't do a science project for him, as tempting as it was. Uh, <laughs> instead, I, I pointed to some ideas about mazes. That was wonderful. But like, just some nut bar who wants to become famous because he thinks his dog is bilingual. <laughs> and I don't mean understands things in two languages, actually speaks two languages. He speaks dog and French. You know. <laughs> um, so one of the things that makes you wonder, and people wonder for years in psychology, is what animal is the smartest? If this is about learning. In fact, when Thorndike first did a lot of his work, he was talking about the smartest animal. He was trying to. People have looked for things like serial position effects, short and long-term memory, and rats and pigeons. You know the serial position effect, you remember the stuff at the beginning of the list, the end of the list, not as well as the stuff uh, better than the stuff in the middle. Right? Um, you know the short-term and long-term memory. People have been doing this for a long time. There's an implicit question being asked here, um, and that is that why did that happen? The implicit question is can rats do what humans do? On the surface, this seems like a very sensible question. Nope, I'm setting up a straw man. Um, well, no, they are. They're just. But on the surface, it almost seems sensible. Now, 
Now, the question is, what is the basis for that question? Right? Why would there be something similar between a rat and a person? And this was pointed out by uh, Campbell Hodos in 1969, where they said that a lot of comparative psychology was basing itself, uh, so that comparative psychology is the study of like, learning. Um, there must be some sort of evolutionary ladder. Right? And as you know, that's just not true. There is no evolutionary ladder, there's no top. There's no body. I hate when I hear something is more evolved than something else. You'll hear that, people say that. And, yeah, sharks have been around longer than humans. Sure. But that's because they're pretty well adapted to their niche. It just works. Okay? Doesn't mean that they're less evolved than us. Or, or more. They just... Their environment's been stable longer than ours, and they've been around longer. Why change? Right? Because if we're going to test rats, pigeons, etc., and people, it seems that we're making the, the idea that the top is people, everything wants to be people, and then probably rats are next because they're both they're also mammals. Then we have birds. No, 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 so you don't go lower. <clears throat> this is one of, another one of my least favorite expressions. People say the lower animals are the higher animals. They're not lower or higher. You can say more recent or more comp com complex, because you can genuinely say a human is more of a complex creature than a worm. Yeah, that's a pretty genuine thing, sensible thing to say. Do it again. I don't understand why this happens. So there's no top, there's no goal. Just is. And I said this the other day, right? The ideas are wrong. The much better question is what has driven some species to be able to solve a certain kind of problem? What evolutionary pressures? So that's where it comes into our domain in this class. So what selected pressures that have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms? That is a much more interesting question. It also used to be the, the far minority opinion. When I was in graduate school, when I started graduate school, this was how I was trained, and we were the mavericks. We were crazy. We were just whack. And now this is how everybody thinks. So I like to think, great, I was on the cutting edge. Nice. So, what selected pressures have led to the evolution of certain cognitive mechanisms? So, asking what species is the smartest is then a silly question, because it's what species is the smartest for its environment, and then that becomes such a, a loaded question that asking it becomes ridiculous. Can I say that humans are exceptional? Hell yes. There are things that we do that no other animal can do, and there are more of them than any other animal can do. Uh, language is a pretty special thing we do. 
we move anywhere we want to. If you take a bunch of chips and just transplant them, I don't know, where should we put them? Search one. I don't know. There's trees there and stuff. Let's put them in the search one. They'd be fine with some. Winter rolls around, I think we get some dead chips. Because what are chips going to do? Are they going to go, you know, what we should do is probably build some shelters. No, that's not what they're going to do. They're going to die. If I took a bunch of you and put you on an island, you'd divide up into two teams and start voting each other off. <laughs> um, it's not where I was going to go, but I realized it. Suddenly that Jeff Probst guy shows up. <laughs> Don't you hope one day that they kill him and eat Because that would hurt him, you know? It's enough of this stupid show! Kill him! He looks delicious! I've eaten nothing but rice! You know? I'm sure that's crossed their minds. Like one of them. This show's been on, what, 15 years? At least one of the guys probably said to himself, you know, if we can kill Probst. Um, <laughs> Screw the cameras, we'll kill the cameraman too. Those guys look great. But if I took all you guys, you know, if you ended up saying you would build shelters, you'd kill animals and eat them, you'd probably end up, if it got cool, you could kill animals that had fur and make clothes. Chimps would just look around going, I don't know, with the white of the sky, with the falling and the coldness, we're screwed. So we're pretty special. There is human exceptionalism here. I would not argue that. Uh, other animals, do they have a culture? There are things that they pass on they learn. Sure, uh, is it as intricate as ours in the human culture? Not even remotely. There is something special about us. So I'm not denying that. Right, that would be stupid. You know, just patently dumb. But asking which species is the smartest is a pretty silly question. It's going to do it again. I don't know why that's happening. So asking what species the smartest is like saying, why can't humans fly by flapping their wings? Because we don't have to fly. That's not the niche win. There was no evolutionary pressure leading to Birdman. That <laughs> more that anyway. Birdman The cool thing humans can do is we can invent freaking airplanes, you know, so. Give us enough time, some money, some resources, and we'll invent something. So, go to hell, birds. Um, we win. So, if we're going to compare species, because it's still an interesting question, because if we're going to compare animals on their learning abilities, but we want it informed by an evolutionary angle, why is it that these two species are different because of what, what's different in their, in their life history, in their evolutionary history. So in their life history and their evolutionary history. So let's say we want to compare two species on some task, some learning task. Let's say we find a, a difference in cognitive ability. Okay, now a simple learning task we might use is something called, this is a very simple learning task called delayed matching to sample. Okay? So the pigeon sees a key light. Now let's do with color. So let's see the light's red. It pecks at the red key ten times. 
The red key goes blank. It waits five seconds. And then the pigeon gets a choice between a red key and a green key. If it pecks the red key, it gets food. If it pecks the green key, Back here. Try. Now it isn't always red, it's the sample. Half time red, half time green, half time red's in the left, half time red, green, red's in the right. We're not stupid. We don't have design experiments. Okay? But it's a very typical animal memory task. And you can do all kinds of neat things with it. That's the simplest kind of version. So, let's compare two species. I don't know. Let's compare uh, pigeons and jackdaws. Okay, so we've got some pigeons, we've got some jackdaws. They do this task. Let's say we find a difference. How do we know that difference? Is it due to motivation? We're feeding them both mixed grain, because that's what these feeders that you buy are designed to give because they're for pigeons. Maybe mixed grain isn't that big a deal for a jackdaw. Okay, could be. So maybe the jackdaw doesn't try, so he doesn't do as well. Oh, now it may not be due to the smarts, it may be due to just motivation. So that's a serious question. This fits in with some stuff that Bitterman said back in the 1965s. Now his notion was to put things, was, was to try all kinds of different amounts of food and all kinds of different food, for example. And different levels of deprivation of the animal. There's another possible Now one of the problems with Bitterman was he also said learning was Rat-like, pigeon-like, fish-like, or turtle-like. In other words, he was using an evolutionary ladder. He denied it. I think he denies it today. I think he's still alive. It's like a thousand years old. But it must be. I mean, he's pretty old. Pretty sure he's still alive. But when you read the paper where he said that, it's like, no, I'm pretty sure you're talking about a ladder. This diagram even kind of looks like one. So. But, but the point he raises is a good one, the one about motivation. How do we know? So, more recently, this is now in the 80s, I mean, Ewan McPhail said, that it's, said, said this. He said, in science, we start with the null hypothesis that nothing happened. You know that, right? You all know that. You should all know about the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis is that nothing happened. There is no difference, in our case here, that there is no difference between the two species. No. No effect. Okay? But you've got to keep that motivational thing in mind, so if there is a difference, you find it could be motivational. So McPhail has said for years that 
the only difference that we can reliably say exists in the animal kingdom, the cognitive abilities, is between humans and everything else. Is that the only difference is that humans have language and nothing else does. That's, that's the fails. Questions so far? Now, now can I will switch out right there. I was, uh, you can actually watch a really good talk go on YouTube and you uh, just Google, and I Google, this is also owned by Google. You do a search on Al Camel, you can find a, a talk he gave last year at the Conference of Comparative Cognition, which uh, I go to every year in Florida. Um, and Al was, on, was honored last year for his contributions to the field. There he is holding a Clark's Nutcracker. Al, Al Camel, this is right after he fails to talk about this. Sees a flaw. You, you've now set up an hypothesis you cannot reject. If I tell you that there's no difference between species, that's the known. We'd all probably agree on that. And then you say, and I find evidence, you say, no, nope, motivation. You've now set up an hypothesis you can't reject. It's a logical flaw. There's a problem here. There's a problem. He's a really neat guy. Uh, he's sort of got a very big personality. Like, he takes over a room because uh, he's really smart. Everybody likes him and he's kind of funny. So everybody kind of takes over a room when he walks in. And I met him first in 1989 at a conference. So 89, I was uh, Hadn't quite turned 24 yet. Um, I was in, just finishing the first year of my master's. And Sarah said, Show would invite you all. He's surprised. He introduced me to him at breakfast. And then we had breakfast together. It was like, it, for me, it was like I was meeting this real star. After a while, kind of get, you get used to that because you go to conferences. But it was one of the first times I met someone like that. And we were talking about these ideas, and the first person that spoke that morning, this is a great conference, it's an annual cognition conference, people got to speak for an hour and a half, give a whole, like a class, basically, to all these great researchers and me. Sarah brought me along, it was wonderful. And the first guy got up and he said, I really like the ideas of you and McPhail. And Al yells across the room, a room that's about this big, about this size, maybe a little, maybe more like AW200. He yells across the room to me directly, hey, Broadbeck, there's one in every crowd. And I'm looking around going, I'm just, I'm just some kid. <laughs> Stop looking at me. He's really cool. So look, at, look up that talk of his, I think he gave last year, because it's on YouTube. Um, hopefully this year, in fact, we're going to podcast every single talk from the conference. You probably guess whose idea that is. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm going to record all of them and then release them like two a week for a whole year because there's like 180 talks at this conference. It's like five or ten minute talks. And then we'll release them all as podcasts. So I think that's going to be fun. So Al said, you've got to sit up on a podcast you can't reject. That's kind of how he talks. He's got a sort of an accent, like sort of a Mac Whitney thing. <laughs> so how do we fix it is what you would ask Al, Al Campbell. 
And he said, what you do is you test many species in many different paradigms. Instead of testing one or two species, imagine the sample using a thousand different retention intervals and a thousand different amounts of food. Why not have many species and then test them on many different kinds of tasks? If we find a similar set of differences in many different traits, a test, it's unlikely that motivation is, is the factor. Because error cancels. Look, if I was to take groups of, let's, let, let's be self-serving. If I took groups of psychology students, okay, and who would be our rival? Who's our rival? Who's our biggest rival? Sociology, okay. <laughs> and group of sociology students. I think that you would, you would say, if we give one test to a group, so a random selected group of psych students, random selected group of sociology students, and we gave them, especially let's say we give them a psych test, who's going to win that? Well, the psychology students. We would, at the end, we would then say, well, that's not quite fair. And then the next time, well, then we'd say, well, to balance it out, let's give them a sociology test. Fine, sociology students probably would better. Notice that he said we do better than psychology students, just to make a little bit better. Um, it's a joke. <laughs> Having fun. Oh, comedy. So, and it's true. But, <laughs> so, now it goes the other way. Why don't we give them all math tests? Let's give them all English tests, give them all philosophy tests, give them all history tests. Now, if on every test, or almost all of them, the psychologist showed students do better, we probably do better. Because we'd say, well, sometimes the, the conditions are going to favor the sociology students, sometimes the psychology students. Right? We wouldn't do that based on one test. That wouldn't be fair. Just like I wouldn't give you a single test and nothing else. I know I'm the only one test in this class, but other ways to evaluate. <laughs> right? I've got a paper, I've got a presentation, and I've got your participation marks. I wouldn't just give you a single test, because you can have a bad day. It's not fair. This is especially true in, in statistics, where we try to make it hard for you to fail those courses. We really do. I mean, that's part of the reason there are you know, eight quizzes, five homework assignments, four midterms, and a final. I know there's a lot of work, but if you have two bad days, you're still not going to fail the class. It's hard to argue that, well, I had, let's see, 8, so that's 8, 5, 13, and then 7. I had 18 bad days, so. Uh, no, I don't think you know what you're doing. So that's the same kind of logic here. We're going to do test different species in many different tasks. So instead of using just this, let's use other memory tasks as well. The error should cancel the advantage to one species on one task with enough different tests, different paradigms should sort of cancel out. Does that make sense? Okay. <coughs> now, how are we going to make predictions about what species should be different than the other? How are we going to make these predictions? We're going to do that by looking at the life history. So that's 
And if you're not, you might be able to the biology background. Life history is basically, just like it sounds, uh, the course of life in a species. First they do this, they do that. Let's look at their biology in general. So let's look at their evolutionary history. Let's look at the niche that they've actually evolved in. The kind of problems they should be solving. Let's look at their brains. Let's look at their brains not only because we want to find out how, how, how evolution has affected them, but let's see how their brains might affect their cognition. And let's look at psychology. So let's look at what kind of tasks they would be able to do. So we're going to look at, oh look, cause and function. In other words, we're going to do animal behavior, animal learning properly. And then ask the question, not can rats do what people do? Let's ask, what kind of cognitive mechanism should have evolved to solve the kind of problems they face in their real lives? Right? So we look at birdsong. We have two experts in bird communication on our university here, Lori Bloomfield in psychology and Jen Foote in biology, both working with chickadees, the coolest of all experimental animals. And both of them would tell you that a regular learning mechanism isn't going to work very well for birdsong, because birdsong had or calls, because they have to be species specific. Right? So a learning mechanism like this, classical conditioning, isn't going to work very well for birdsong. Because they have to learn that and get it right and do it perfectly. And this one here, opera conditioning, isn't going to work very well. They have to get it right and do it perfectly. So you're going to have another kind of learning mechanism. So in other words, instead of just doing demonstrations, and the old program of research in, in, in comparative psychology was a program of demonstration. Hey, look what rats can do. Hey, I trained this pigeon to do this. Write it up. For a hundred years, we were all just wasting our freaking time in this area. Complete I shouldn't say that. That's not fair. <laughs> good, some interesting data, some good techniques. But the questions behind it were really ridiculous because it was a program of demonstration. What Sarah Shuttleworth calls the anthropocentric program, which is a really, when you think about it, it's anthropomorphism. She's being really, I remember when she, she was a PhD supervisor, she showed me, she wrote some early theoretical stuff on this too in the 90s, and she showed this to me. I said, don't you think you're being a little harsh? Saying they're anthropomorphizing? And she said, well, but they are. I said, hey. <laughs> She's right. And the ecological program, or the synthetic approach, synthetic meaning synthesizing a bunch of different fields, which is the way people do it now, the way when everyone thought we were crazy radicals in the, in, the, in the late 80s and early 90s, is the way people do things. More typical. There's nothing wrong with doing this kind of work. I've done this kind of work, but I did it for a reason. Not just to say, hey, look, pigeons can remember colors. <laughs> Neo. <clears throat> So the story with food storing birds is the greatest story ever told. <laughs> a lot of birds store food, right? Chickadees, 
So the chickadees and the, and the, and the titmice, and then you got the, the nuthatches, and you got your nutcrackers, crows, your jays. They all store food and recover it hours or days later for consumption. Which is the opening sentence of about two thirds of everything I've ever written. Store food, they recover it later. We talked the other day, and we're Anderson and Krebs. I mentioned the idea that you have to recover your own seeds because communal storing's not going to work. What's the best way to recover your own seeds? Well, remember where the hell you put them. Right? You might think smell, but actually, these are all diurnal birds. The diurnal birds don't, aren't good at smell. They have little tiny olfactory bulbs, they just aren't good at it, so it's not going to be smell. So you have to remember where you put your food. So you can set marking things like that. It's not going to work. So the first thing that was done was, uh, this was uh, Sherry, Avery, and Stevens in 1981. They took, this was in, 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 in uh, White and Wood, it's in Oxford. And they took uh, pine nuts, and instead of making pesto with them, they laced them with um, a, with a radioactive uh, element. Made radioactive pine nuts. Now, not so bad that they would do any damage to anybody with the environment, but enough that they could be tracked with a diving camera. The birds, they just put them Bull and the marsh tits came and they take the seeds and they just fly off. Now, what happens when, you know, the nice thing now is that now I can go find where they put the seeds. Detector, the better camera, I can find a seed. And with a third of the seeds, I can leave them where they are. And with a third of them, I can move them over 10 centimeters. And a third of them, I can move them over 30 centimeters. Simple experiment. And then a week later, I'll come back and find out where, which seeds were, were recovered and which seeds weren't. The ones that were gone were the ones that weren't moved. The ones that were moved weren't found. They must be doing recovering their own seeds, because if they were doing it using the sort of socialist paradise approach, everybody doing it communally, it shouldn't make a difference if I move them or not, right? So now we know it's true that birds recover their own seeds. How are they doing? Are they using memory? So, and this is a, and then, so that's the 81 and 82. Uh, Shuttleworth and Krebs come out with a paper where what they've done in a, in a little room, a little aviary about the size of, well, from here to the wall, and from here to like that second row, that's the size of this room. And there's four, four by fours in there that have holes built in. It's all there. Birds allowed in, go from the pine nuts, birds store seeds. Remove half the seed, half the seeds, let the bird back in after half an hour. Bird recovers. So the same thing. So you remove, remove half and remove them. Where's the bird visit? It visits where it's put seeds. It only takes recovers seeds from where it put them. They're using their memories. They can't be using smell or marking it.
the chickadees, or so the marsh tits, Sarah Shelworth gave Sherry were actually both from U of T. They were over there on sabbatical. They come back here to Toronto, um, and they start studying these things. The, the food storing, the group over at Oxford, that's John Krebs, Nikki Clayton, uh, Sue Healy, that group. They're still studying marsh tits. Then there's Al Campbell's group, and they're studying Clark's nutcrackers. Now Clark's nutcrackers are special. Clark's nutcrackers store 30,000 seeds in the fall and recover 25,000 of them six months later. Pretty special. They do a straight up memory test matching the sample. And when it's about color, they're no better than pigeons. When it's about space, though, when instead of it's a color lit up, but you've got say that the space is here, and then there's a retention interval, and then the choice is here or here for the bird to peck. Pigeons are good at that to about 10 seconds, then they just suck, they get the chance, 50%. Clark's not crackers right, 90 seconds. Wow, but no difference in the color. It's exactly what you predict. Why should there be a difference in color? It's got nothing to do with remembering the color of the world, it would have changed between, oh, I don't know, November or in May. But where they put it, the actual place in three-dimensional space, that's going to matter. That kind of stuff was also tried with the chickadees and the marsh tits and that, and it wasn't very successful. It wasn't very successful. Um, the reason it probably worked with the Clark's Nutcrackers is because they're the champions, because they're so good at this. Al Campbell's group and Dave Sherry's group looked at hippocampal volume. Hippocampus is important in remembering where stuff is. So look at hippocampus. First Dave's group, actually, what he did is they lesioned hippocampus in a chickadee and had it store food, which it would still do. It would try to find it, too. It just couldn't find it. No idea. They also looked at hippocampal volume between stores and non-stores. Correct for brain size, it's bigger in the stores than in non-stores. Not very much luck with the doing these kind of comparisons within the chickadees. And it turned out that it wasn't one of these quantitative differences that how much they could remember or for how long they could remember. Uh, in the 1990s, uh, Sarah Shuttleworth's group started looking at what they're remembering, not how they're remembering. So not how much, but how. Turns out what the chickadees do is they remember the spatial location very precisely. And in fact, they ignore the color of, of sleep. You can force them to learn the color, but it takes a long time. Because they just want to use space all the time to solve these kind of tasks. So the approach then is about remembering the space, not the color. 
They will ignore the color. They can see color. They just ignore it. Other species don't do that. They use everything. Chickadees are like, I don't care. My life depends on knowing where this seed is tomorrow morning or I die. That was an idea that was had by one of her young graduate students, Dave Broadbeck. Um, and I mentioned that they can see color because in my PhD world, I was asked by a guy, the internal external, PhD exams are weird. You got your committee. So there was Sarah and a guy named Ken Chang, you may have heard me talk about, and Martin Ralph, the guy with the, the mutant hamsters, so him, and Gordon Lineker, who's a human neuropsychology guy, and then there's Marcia Stetch, who's uh, from Europe, Alberta, and then there was, because you fly in a little expert, and then there's a guy from the pharmacology department or something that had once used rats to push a lever. So he asked me if, if chickens could see color. I said, well, if you, there's a reference, if you look on page, you know, whatever it was, nine or something, that they can see color. They have all the equipment in their eyes and such. Uh, they have all these oil droplets and they have different cones and such. So yeah, sure, they can see color. He said, did you experimentally prove it? I said, well, they can discriminate them, so sure. But you haven't proved it. So I said, are you asking if I've done the definitive work on the psychophysics of chicken color vision? He said, yes. I said, I was busy discovering this stuff. <laughs> and it was like, I can't believe when, I mean, I just, I would normally not act like that when, you know, my career was in the balance. But he also got mad at me for thanking the Montreal Canadiens for winning the Stanley Cup in my, in my uh, acknowledgement section. It was 1993, they just won. And I said, my final thanks go to Consulate Trophy winner Patrick Waugh and the rest of the 1992-94 Stanley Cup champions, the Montreal Canadiens. And he said, is that appropriate? I said, are you a Leaf fan? <laughs> That's the one place you can say something like you can make a joke. <laughs> the one place you can make a joke. <clears throat> you can't make little side comments in your PhD thesis. Your acknowledgement section, go to hell. I could have written in Hellfish. So it turns out with the chickadees, and also, by the way, when you do the work with the Clark Spectrackers and compare them, uh, they do ignore color. So the stuff that I found applied to the Clark Spectrackers, in a way it was easier to do the Clark Spectracker work, work because they were so much better than every other uh, bird species. This work continues, but it's really way more subtle now. The, the food story story has been told now. It's nice that it fits in with the biology of the animal because they don't they don't migrate. They stay around. Food storing evolved as a way to deal with fluctuating food supplies. The other way is to leave. And they had to they was they had um, good memory being selected for spatial memory, which led to these adaptive specializations of behavior which led to specializations in their brain, well, which were driven by specializations in their brains. It's a nice story. Cowbirds are interesting, too. Um, cowbirds are nest parasites. What that means is a cowbird doesn't lay eggs in its own, in fact, cowbirds don't make nests. They just lay their eggs in other birds' nests. They lay their eggs in other birds' nests. Huh. All kinds of
kinds of specializations here. Cowbirds don't learn cowbird song. They're born with it. They don't learn it at all. Unlike every other bird species that learns it, they don't, they're just born with how to sing because they're raised by another species. So they're raised by sparrows or chickadees or whatever. So what's the mother have to do? Well, the female cowbird's got to know where all the nests are in the area. And it's got to know if, there are, if the eggs are hatched yet. Because you can't put extra eggs in a hatched, like with a bunch of young, because they'll just eat the eggs, right? You have to drop your eggs in a nest that's already got, that's already got eggs in it. They haven't hatched it. So the mothers have to know a lot of stuff. Fathers don't. Males have to, they give sperm. So that should mean that the females are better than the males in spatial tasks, unlike almost every other species. Beautiful. Well, let's look at their hippocampus. Female hippocampus bigger than male hippocampus in cowbirds. There's different kinds of cowbirds. There is one kind that specializes, one species, that specializes in only parasitizing one nest. And then there are, there's about eight different kinds of cowbirds. Then there's one species of real generalist spe- uh, 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 parasitizes at least 216 different other species. Guess which one has the bigger hippocampal difference? The one with 216, because it got to remember more bird nests. And there are behavioral differences, cognitive differences. It's a lot, for some reason, it's a lot harder to do this. With the chickadees and the, the food storing, it's easy because you can make a task that looks, that's a lot like food storing. I remember Dave Sherry and I working on this for a while, trying to figure out a task, and like we came up with this idea of there being these nests that had, what were we using? Jelly beans as fake eggs. It was just like, it was a hard thing to do. But it looks like there also is a difference there between males and females. A lot of that work was done by Alex Kaselik, a biologist at Oxford. Uh, and Lucy Jacobs, who's, where's Lucy now? University of California, San Diego, I think. Voles are great. You know what a vole is? It's a little uh, rodent about that big that if you pick it up, you should be wearing chainmail gloves because they just bite your hand off. They're little wild. <laughs> People that capture voles and use it for experiments literally pick them up with tongs and they wear a chainmail butcher's glove. Because if you don't, you just end up losing fingers. They're vicious little buggers. It's like a rat. Like a lab rat or a pet rat, you pick it up, put it on your shoulder, and you sit there, nibble on your earrings. They did this, they're all nice. A vole would just grab on and take a your eardrum and eat it. They're just vicious little buggers. So there's two kinds of voles. Well, not a lot of kinds of voles. But there's two interesting kinds of voles here, two species, one of them being the pine vole, and one of them being the meadow vole. Of course, they've got the meadow soprano. I watch, I've got to finish the sopranos, or else I'm going to stop making references. So the pine vole is monogamous. Unlike most mammals, it's actually monogamous. One male to one female. Right? Why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting. It's only because most species, most mammals aren't monogamous. But the metal vole is the metal vole's polygamous. 
all along the meadow, he's got ladies. He's got maybe three or four mates, and they all live in a different little, you know, once they have the young, they live in a, a little a burrow, right near Candy Hamster up by the river there. Anyone? No? Um, okay, so what we expect there, we expect there to be a male-female hippocampal difference and memory difference, with males being superior, in this case only the cowboys, but only in the polygamous species, the one that has many little families. We would not expect that in the monogamous species. And guess what? Yes, exactly true. That's work done by Steve Gollin. Uh, those of you who took evolutionary psych with me, Gollin wrote our textbook last year. So, and it shows up on, also the hippocampal difference, male-female, but only for the meadow voles, not the, not the pine voles, and a difference in ability on spatial memory-type mazes. This is amazing stuff. This is it. I wonder if rats show a serial position effect, because people do. Let's find out. Hey, look. Look what I found. It's a rat with a serial position effect. I have no idea why that's interesting. Please publish my article. That's not nearly as interesting. Now, I'm really downplaying that work, obviously. Uh, I think this story is an piece of much better stories because they're putting together the evolutionary angle and the predictions are made in advance. Putting the evolutionary angle with the psychological angle. See, originally people thought that all remember equal potentiality, all species are the same, and it's general process learning. There's maybe two kinds of learning. Maybe one. Remember that when I talked about the standard social science model? It applied to freaking animals. They're freaking animals, man. How can they cut the power? Aliens? Screw it, man. Let's just nuke the site from orbit. I say that all the time. Yeah, game over, man. <laughs> so a friend of mine back in Newfoundland makes the court that movie all the time. Whenever a meeting would get out of hand, he'd say, well, screw it, man. Let's just nuke the site for more of it. How could they cut the power? Yeah, we know the power goes up. And of course, here in Sault Ste. Marie, it's every 20 minutes. <laughs> I was saying, how could they cut the freaking power, man? They're animals. <laughs> From an evolutionary perspective, obviously the idea that there be one or two kinds of learning and everything, everything can learn everything is ridiculous. Like, it's just stupid. Asinine. Yeah, yeah ridiculous, stupid asinine. So I think I've, I, you can see where I stand on this. So we're going to make predictions and we're going to do tests. And many of them. When the food storing stuff was going on when I was doing my PhD, um, it really went gangbusters till about maybe 10 years ago. So from the late 80s, well, early 80s till the late 90s, there were like five labs doing this stuff and we were publishing between all the different labs 10 articles a year, maybe more than that. Then we just, it's done. Story's over. Move on. Questions about that?
So learning itself is modular. What do I mean by that? Well, a module is a cognitive mechanism, kind of like an organ, but it's a cognitive mechanism. So we might have, we probably have a module, we probably have a module for space. In fact, I would, give, I would almost guarantee you. We need most animals, by the way, including us and rats and everything. There are things that are common among all species. Just because I said there's differences doesn't mean everything's a whole ton of commonality. Space, which as you know is the final frontier, and we all have everything that moves is a space module. And it's about geometry. It's about relationships, geometric relationships between usually edges of environments. That's a good way to navigate. Uh, the line of trees that way, 40 meters away from here, on an angle of whatever is going to be there tomorrow, too. Right? We have a time module. We have to keep track of time. Right? And pretty much everything has that. We've talked about the timing mechanisms in hamsters, for example. Everything does circadian timing like that. Pretty much everything tested so far does interval timing as well. We probably have a mechanism for number. Now, it may be, whereas it is the humans, we can deal with very complicated number relationships. Very complicated ones. We, we can do math. Um, other species, it, it may just be few and many. Right? Um, so it's a sense of number, but not like it is in us. Though there was some interesting work done. Um, um, with squirrel monkeys by uh, Oldhoff. Biden, uh, Roberts, and this is uh, 1997. And what they did is they had two squirrel monkeys, and they trained them. They, 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 they had this like um, piece of wood that had two little wells in it, and they put a little amounts of peanut underneath there, uh, in there. So like you might put, so there's three there, and five there. So they... You take this thing and you put this on top of it, you put a card that says three and a card that says five. You slide that in, the monkey removes the card, and if it takes the five, it gets five pieces of peanut. It takes the three, it gets three pieces of peanut. And what they did is they held certain pairs, they never put them together. Let's say seven and four. Then you test them with seven and four and they go to the seven. So they've learned that seven is bigger than four. Now, that's cool to begin with, but when you do this, let's see, five and three. So you go with, instead of five and three, test them with that, they're perfect on the first day. They spontaneously add it. Pretty damn neat work. 
Two monkeys, by the way, were named Jake and Elwood after the Blues Brothers, which I think is kind of cool. And if you knew Bill Roberts at all, you would think he'd be the last guy that liked the Blues Brothers, so it's kind of interesting. So when will a new module evolve? Um, when present ones won't solve the, the, the evolutionary problem the animal faces. This is what Sherry and Schachter said in 1987, way back So when will we get new memory systems or new cognitive modules? When the present ones can't solve a problem that the animal faces in its environment, when it moves into a new niche or something like that. They used the example in their paper of birdsong. When birds started communicating using song, that had to be to go in with, uh, sort of paired with a learning mechanism that could make sure the animal learned a species-specific song. You wouldn't want to do it with classical conditioning or opera conditioning. Anybody need a spare pair of contacts? These have been up here for a couple of days. I don't know. <laughs> Somebody obviously sees just fine. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's in there. The stuff that ends up in here. Usually by now there's a few. There's a couple of coats that have been here for a while. Usually there's an umbrella or two at this point. One year it brings a hay bread, a little singing in the rain. There's an umbrella. As my own eyes be more and more embarrassed by being um, All right. Any questions about this stuff about learning? So you can see that this is the stuff that psychologists, for the most part, have been attacking for a long time. And frankly, this is a more evolutionary way to do it and becoming the norm. On that note, I will see you guys in the future. Thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.